Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 259, Bernie Memes are Torah. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are back for another episode. We usually don't do two in a row that's just Lex and me, but we are doing it this week because we have a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on in the world, and we have a really exciting set of episodes coming up next. And we'll talk a little bit about setting all that up. So we've got a lot to cover, and we really wanted to start off by continuing from where we were last week. And then we want to talk a bit about what's been going on for the last week or so, which is the transition of the American government and all of the ways that that impacts Jews and Judaism and Judaism Unbound. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the episodes that we have coming up in the next series. Before we do, just want to thank everybody for all your support. We just did it last week, so I'm not going to put out a big plea here for your financial support. But I will put out a plea for something that we haven't asked for people to do in a long time, which is to write a positive review of Judaism Unbound on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. But anyway, thank you so much for all your support and for that moral support as well. It's not just that it makes us feel good to see the positive reviews, although it does, but it's a way to get people to find out about the podcast who don't already know about it. So thanks so much for helping us there. And let's jump into our conversation. Lex, I wanted to talk a little bit about last week. We've been talking about philanthropy. I was really excited about our episode last week and some of the thoughts that we had, some of the unusual thoughts, such as that you should give less money to Jewish causes, which is not a uh, usual thing to hear from a Jewish organization. And I wanted to start off today by talking about something that I saw on Facebook Now, I don't want to call out the person. I actually don't know the person who posted this. And so if they're a listener, I apologize for, you know, disagreeing with you. But somebody had put a Facebook post online basically asking, how do you figure out how much of your money to give to charity or philanthropy or tzedakah, right? And and it's basically like, even if you say 10%, is that 10% before taxes, 10% after taxes? You know, how does your family figure out how much you're going to give? And one person posted that I give 10%, but it's net of taxes and essential costs, such as sending my kids to day school, because if I gave the 10% based on the amount before I deducted the day school tuition, I literally wouldn't be able to afford to send my kids to day school. And that just really struck me after we had just had this conversation that we had last week, where I felt like I could have easily imagined the same comment saying, I give 10% before I deduct tuitions, and therefore I literally can't afford to send my kids to day school. Now that would be an interesting post, that would have all kinds of implications. But what struck me was just the idea that it it seemed obvious that, of course, we have to deduct all the expenses of being Jewish before we have the gross amount or the net amount that we're going to use to then deduct 10% for charity from. And it just struck me as like weird and off because it felt like the whole, like we talked about last week, like the whole point of Judaism 
is to get us to give more generously to those who need it, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of feels like if we're only doing that with the money that's left over after we've spent all the money on Judaism, like that's not, that shouldn't be what Judaism is for. From that person's perspective, I mean, I don't want to speak for them and I also don't know them, but like one of those pieces feels like a choice and the other sort of feels like an automatic that isn't even a choice. Like my kids are going to go to day school. And of course, both of them are choices. The amount and the direction of philanthropic gifts that anybody gives, that's a choice. And where one's kids go to school is a choice, although we should name. Like for some people, it's not a choice if you if you really don't have access to that kind of money. Um, lots of people, that's why, you know, public schools exist. But um, it is not an automatic given that people who are able or Jews who are able go to Jewish day school. And more than that, you know, I I feel compelled to say this as somebody whose parents like actually did the the effort of looking at different schools in the area. They went to the public school in my town growing up. They went to uh, the Jewish day school right down the road. They went to a, a different private school that was not religiously affiliated. I ended up going to that third one, to the private school that is not religiously affiliated. And, you know, they weighed various pros and cons, and they decided not to send me to the Jewish day school. That's not a reflection of them, like, caring less about my Jewishness or something. Too many people are willing to say, like, oh, you you just got to send the kids to Jewish day school. That's, like, a fundamental basic fact of what it means to care about, like, passing on Judaism to the future. That's not clear to me. We tell this story that sort of that's how you are most likely to yield Jewish adults. And maybe that's the case, right? But is that value of ours, you know, having Jewishly engaged adults post-childhood, like, is that value of ours so deep that we are going to put aside other values, including, you know, tzedakah, like charitable giving? That's a serious question. My answer is, at the very least, it should be maybe not. Maybe we're not going to make that prioritization. And at most, I think I lean towards maybe Jewish day school isn't right for families where it would mean not giving philanthropic giving, which I, I want to be clear. Like, I'm not saying, you know, there, everybody has so much money that they can do both. I'm saying specifically there's lots of people who can't. And that's uh, that calls on us either to have Jewish day schools that are less expensive or differently structured, or for people to make some different kinds of decisions. What would happen in the world in which it was super clear that I could never post something like that because the understanding of everybody would be, I mean, let's say it was a Jewish law that you have to give 10% of your gross income to philanthropy, and therefore you have 90% to work with. And if you looked at your finances and you said, well, I can't afford to send my kids to day school in that situation, you wouldn't be able to say, well, then I'm going to give less to charity because that would be a specific Jewish law. Like I'm talking about a community that observes Jewish law. So what would happen? Now, I actually think that most people in those communities would jump to the conclusion in the very next statement. Well, if that was the situation, then of course, philanthropists would have to come in. Like we would have to have, you know, wealthy people come in and subsidize day schools. They're saying that now. We couldn't imagine that the answer would be, for example, then I guess we can't have afford to have day schools, so let's not have day schools. Or that the answer would be then, you know, day school tuition is going to have to get a lot cheaper. And they're like, well, how could we make it a lot cheaper? Well, you'd have to offer less Jewish studies 
hours, for example, or something like that. Or you would say, well, I guess we can't afford to have a full-time total immersion alternative to public school. Like public school is free, right? We're already paying taxes. It's it's free to the extent that you've already paid for it. And so let's move the whole Jewish education world to a post-school, you know, an after-school reality, which is more or less what it was when our my parents, at least, were growing up. There was almost no such thing as a Jewish day school. Very, very few people went to a Jewish day school. But there was a five-day-a-week after-school program. And there's all kinds of arguments against all that. But what I want to note is that Judaism is too expensive. The Jewish community has allowed Judaism to become too expensive. One possibility is to say, if Judaism is going to be this expensive, it can't be right, right? We're going to have to make changes to our understanding of Judaism and what Judaism asks of us in order to make it something that is affordable for the average Jew, or let's say for the below average Jew, because we want it to be affordable to the vast majority of Jews, if not all the Jews. What does that mean? Well, maybe we have to redefine kosher food in order to make it affordable. Maybe we have to redefine what a Jewish education means such that it is achievable in an affordable way. Because I, I don't get the world that allows the cost of being Jewish to go up and up and up and up, which it is, and then allow people to say, and the only way that I can afford to participate in this world is to effectively reduce my giving to those who are in great need. It just gets to a point where it feels like, well, what's the point of that? I want to keep breaking this down because I think you're making such good points. I mean, what I what I think we opened up last week by kind of explicitly saying, you know, give less to Jewish causes. And we said that to ourselves. That's how we started that. Not that, that both you and I feel that if we looked at our charitable giving, we've probably given more than we would in the abstract want to, to specifically Jewish organizations and less than we would want to, to sort of broader kinds of philanthropic projects. You know, let's go to that day school conversation. Like, there's so much framing around, you know, sending to Jewish day school versus not. I don't hear many people talking about like the active, wonderful things that come with sending somebody to a public school or even in, you know, in my case, sending somebody to uh, it was a private school, but a school where I was one of the only Jews. And I've made this claim in the past, and I really firmly believe it to my core because of various things about my own personality. I believe that if I went to Jewish day school, I would be less engaged in Jewish life today as a 30-year-old. I, I can't prove that to anyone. I don't know it for sure. I am a person who has always liked being different from my surroundings. And so being at a school where I was one of the only Jews made me like being Jewish and made me feel proud of it. That's not I'm not saying that's everybody, but it's a meaningful number of people that that are that way. And so if I had been in a space where being Jewish didn't make me different from anybody around me, I think I might have gone and gotten really passionate about something else. And that's neither good nor bad, right? But I, I just want to bring it up because like in saying before, like I did, you know, don't go to Jewish day school, that can sound like I'm just sort of crapping on Jewish organizations for no reason. But like at the end of the day, right, like there's people like me and others who feel that their very Jewishness, their very Judaism traces to realms that we would call sort of 
not Jewish. You're like, oh, I lived in Milwaukee, like not that, not that Jewish city. Oh, I went to a school that wasn't a Jewish day school. Oh, and like we we hammer home these assumptions that, oh, that's sort of a less Jewish terrain to say to live in Wisconsin, say, or the school is less Jewish or whatever. All that's to say, I I like what we started to do last week by saying, you know, that Jewish giving, that a, that a choice driven by Jewish things, whether that's values or sensibilities, whatever, is specifically to give less to Jewish identified institutions. Like, we're really not joking when we say that. Like, we mean it. And, and I think that a lot of people actually feel that way, that like drawing on the very Judaism that they hold dear, they feel compelled to support things that are universal. Yeah, it connects to another point, which is, you know, when you're a nonprofit organization, there are often these websites and other kind of things that kind of look at how efficient is the nonprofit organization. And one of the questions is basically how much of your organization's money are you putting into fundraising? And there's some rule of thumb, I think it's less than 15% or 20%, that at least 80%, 80 cents on the dollar that you take in should be going to the program that your organization runs and not to the raising of more money. And I kind of think about looking with that lens to Judaism itself and to say how much of the investment in Judaism is going to the goals of Judaism, which I think have to do with you know making the world a better place and, and things of that nature. And it connects to something that we've talked a bit about before, and I'm sure we're going to talk about again, which is just this question of synagogue dues, for example. And and I've actually been thinking about it on an ethical level recently as well and saying that the basic model, I'm sure I've said this before, but the basic model that a synagogue runs on is the business model of a gym, which means that you rely on all these people who are willing to pay the monthly dues or the annual dues who don't actually participate in the in the day-to-day workings of the organization, because if everybody who paid gym membership dues showed up, there wouldn't be enough machines to serve them. So the gym relies on the idea that people actually are not participating, but they feel this need that they should participate, and that that need is enough that they're willing to pay for it. The experience of the people who do participate, who do go to the gym every day, is being subsidized by the people who pay but don't go every day. And that's a business model for a business of a gym. I don't like the idea that Judaism is operating on that business model, right? I don't like the idea that we have an expectation that people who are not participating should pay a lot of money. And I don't like the idea that the people who do participate are participating in something that is so expensive that they actually can't afford to pay for it and therefore depend on the subsidies of others, whether those others are people making philanthropic gifts or people who, for whatever reason, are willing to pay these dues, but that don't actually participate in it. I'm looking for a Judaism that everybody who participates pays. Nobody who doesn't participate pays. And if they want to, they're welcome to, but but, but we don't need the money from people who don't participate. The money that comes from the people who do participate is enough. And what that means is that you're going to have to offer a really good experience for participating. Hopefully, it's going to be such a good experience that it generates word of mouth and so that more people want to participate and pay. That becomes a completely different economic model for Judaism. But I actually want to put an ethical thumb on that scale and to say that that's actually a better form of Judaism. And it's a form of Judaism that I would prefer. And that's a lot of rethinking that has to go on, but I I think it does flow from some of this stuff. 
Yeah, I want to go in a weird direction. John Ossoff is a person who exists. New senator from Georgia. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing up John Ossoff because I think he's an interesting case study for what we're talking about. We're asking questions about what it is to be and do Jewish, right? So going back to the philanthropic question, it's like, is the Jewish thing, to use my frame of last week, to give to projects where the recipients are Jewish? Like, is that what Jewish giving is? Or on the other hand, is Jewish giving something that describes a process of giving that would be in line with Jewish values? Or is it just about like the fact that somebody is a Jew and then they give to whatever they give, then it's Jewish giving? Like, that's a question we asked last week. John Ossoff, I bring up because he is Jewish. He, look, his his mom is not Jewish. His father is, but he did a sort of official conversion uh, at some point in his childhood. So like he's Jewish. And the question then is, from my perspective, okay, there's all these pieces out in the world, articles, whatever, about, ah, John Ossoff's Jewish. That's cool. Like, what's what do we do with that? And it's like, okay, he actually has a high magnitude of what I would term particularist Judaism and universalist Judaism. Like, if you were to ask questions of like, ah, is a person member of Jewish organizations, synagogue goer, did they go to the summer camps, the youth groups? Like, John Ossoff actually did many of those things. Like, he was part of a, a Jewish summer program called Edgar 36. Shout out, Billy Planner, if you're listening. I know you sometimes do. You run that program. He has, in many sort of tangible ways, been connected to Atlanta's Jewish community for a while. So, like, you know, check those boxes. If you're, if the questions we're asking are about, like, is the person, quote unquote, you know, supporting Jewish life or involved in Jewish life? Like, he's actually a very clear yes in a way that not all politicians are always a very clear yes. And, though, I want to talk about the other side, all the universalist side. So, first of all, I'll say, like, end of the day, John Ossoff's not, like, my perfect politician. I'm not saying this because I think he's, like, the ideal. But, like... He is somebody on a universalism axis where, like, he clearly, in all his speeches, you know, calls on universal values, talks about Dr. King, even though Dr. King is, you know, not Jewish himself. He's in this, he's representing the state of Georgia, where Martin Luther King is a huge presence historically. He um, has forged connections across many lines of difference. Notably and importantly, he and the other senator who is new in Georgia, Senator Warnock, very consciously looked to messaging of universalism and making bridges across difference, across racial difference, across religious difference. So, like, he checks all those boxes, too. And I want to name that, like, there are a lot of Jews who, in a non-trivial, real, valid, authentic sense, when asked, you know, what makes them Jewish, they're going to go to those much more than they are going to go to, like... I go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, or I have a Seder with my family. They may also say that, they may not. I'm bringing this up because it seems like we almost have to say, you know, ah, yes, John Ossoff lives Jewish ideals and values in these universal ways. And also, by the way, we have to say this other piece about how he supports Jewish causes and is connected to the institutions. Like, by the way, that's also because there's other people out there, right? You know, let's take a Doug Emhoff or something. Like, like people who do check the universalist boxes, but don't necessarily check the more particularist boxes of Jewish identity. And I think we spend a lot of time, you know, debating whether those people are truly Jewish. We could even talk about, you know, Bernie Sanders conversations we had way back in the day. Like, 
it's not even it's to me it's a silly question whether bernie sanders is like truly jewish it's like he aesthetically and patently on his face it's just so clearly a, a sense of historical jewish experience is embedded into who he is but we still have those debates we don't debate about you know the people who are synagogue goers why well, there's a lot of interesting Jewish angles on the uh, new administration. Uh, one of them that, you know, is related to what you're talking about has been this uh, Doug Emhoff's daughter, Ella Emhoff, was on this list that the forward Jewish newspaper does every year of the 50 most, I don't know exactly what they call it, most influential Jews. I mean, our good friend B'nai Lappi was also on the list. So in that sense, I celebrate this Ooh. list. But also Ella Emhoff was on this list. And they recently had to publish a little sort of a retraction that said, uh, I guess it's only 49 top Jews this year because... <laughs> they didn't quite retract it. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, wanted, like, I wish they did. But, I said yeah. it was a sort of, a sort of a retraction because they did indicate that she actually doesn't consider herself Jewish. From a lineal standpoint, right, she and John Ossoff are the same, like their fathers are Jewish and their mothers are not Jewish. And John Ossoff considers himself Jewish and Ella Emhoff does not consider herself Jewish. And there are Jews out there that, you know, that consider neither of them Jewish. And there are Jews out there that consider both of them Jewish to a certain extent. And there's people, I'm sure, that would take a look at John Ossoff's conversion and find it wanting and therefore say that he's not Jewish, even though he says he is, you know, and there's there's so much uh, a debate about this. But at the very least, it feels like somebody's own right to self-determination, you know, whether or not they consider themselves Jewish is an important piece of this. And yet the forward and other publications didn't check in advance, you know, just kind of assumed that if we say a person is patrilineally Jewish, meaning their father is Jewish, and we're trying to be really uh, open and inviting, then of course we consider them Jewish. So they're Jewish. So let's celebrate it as opposed to first checking with them to see if they themselves consider themselves Jewish, which is interesting. Like, it feels to me like it's a new... I mean, I, I think that part of it is that didn't even occur to them that somebody who is Jewish by their outsider definition, in other words, that that they that whoever's making the judgment judges them as Jewish, that somehow that person would only be grateful. You know, like, there's no mm -hmm. sense that that person would say, actually, I'm not. And that, that seems like an important new wrinkle in all this. It's a huge wrinkle. And and I, wa I want to say some things directly because I felt really strongly about these articles. And look, not everybody has to agree with me, but I, I feel really strongly about a lot of this, especially from the axis of interfaith relationships and interfaith families. Ella Emhoff is not Jewish. I feel that that is a factual statement. I actually don't think it's an opinion. I, I understand that others would say it's an opinion. Like, she does not consider herself Jewish. And when asked, are you Jewish, says no. Ella Emhoff isn't Jewish. Now, I don't even really want to bring this up because I feel like it plays into Orthodox hands. But like, There's also the fact that from a traditional Orthodox understanding of who is a Jew, she's also not Jewish. Now, I, I, the reason I don't want to bring that up is because there are lots of other people like John Ossoff, like others who have a Jewish father who do identify as Jewish. And I don't want people to listen to this podcast and like come away with a takeaway that those people aren't Jewish. No, the takeaway is people have the ability to define themselves. That's not some naive, utopian, like wild opinion. Like people have that ability. And by the way, another piece is 
The Reform Movement's definition of who is a Jew would also consider Ella Emhoff not Jewish. By the Reform Movement's definition, you can have one Jewish parent, whatever gender they are. If you're raised Jewish, then you're Jewish. But Ella Emhoff wasn't raised as Jewish. And so from the Reform Movement's perspective, she would not be Jewish. So Orthodoxy, Reform actually agree for once on this point. And yet we still have people out there in the world making the claim that Ella Emhoff, despite the fact that she does not identify herself as Jewish, is still Jewish. Um... This is something that involves a healthy dose, and in my view, a, I don't know, majority dose of self-identification. And that means that we don't get to play the game of, ah, oh, no, 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 Ella Emhoff, of course she, but like, I just mean that we should be inclusive. It's not inclusive. Like, the word inclusive matters, and do, taking steps to make Jewish life actually inclusive matters. And, you know, we've talked on the show about how it also needs to be more than just inclusion. The people that, like, are being included need to be at the center of the room, not just sort of welcomed to the room. And we need to be going to their spaces. It's not inclusion to say, hey, a bunch of people who actively don't see themselves as part of this space, you're welcome to be in our space. And that, it, it's it's a kind of, like, colonialism. It's like... You're my thing. Even though you don't think you're my thing, you're my thing. And, you know, th that article in the foreword, it concluded with just, from my perspective, this really atrocious, condescending paragraph that was like, hey, Ella, if you ever decide to feel differently, like the Jewish door is open to you and contact us at the foreword. Mm. Can you imagine if... If somebody of any religious background, I mean, Christian is obviously problematic, but like, let's say anybody of any religious tradition, even a minority tradition, let's say a Muslim publication or a Buddhist publication or a Hindu publication closes by saying, hey, Jewish person, you're welcome to leave. You're welcome to come to our thing. That would be a huge problem. I would stand up and say, what are you doing? And like, we're going and doing that to this person. You know, honestly, to the people who want to be welcomed, who spend so much time trying to be welcomed and who aren't, it's really insulting to say like, oh, yes, we we want to claim this person who's not even asking to be Jewish, but patrilineal Jews who aren't famous, who spend a lot of time being told, oh, but you're not really Jewish. Like, we, we got to be better. I'm flashing back to Robert Manukin's episode where he talked about this and how people even we haven't even talked about like two Jewish parent people. That, to me, that starts to get even more complicated. But I, I am, in fact, hinting that if somebody has two Jewish parents and they don't identify themselves as part of the Jewish project, that they also should be respected for that approach. Other layers come up there, I will admit, but also some things are the same in that situation. You know, I'm thinking about Lenny Bruce's famous routine about, you know, who, what's Jewish and how he talked about, you know, Count Basie and Ray Charles are Jewish, right? You know, and and he was trying to blur that line or, you know, he was saying other things which we might find problematic in how he's defining Jewish and not Jewish. But just this idea that Jewish and not Jewish doesn't only have to do with who your parents were. And maybe in the future, that won't at all. I mean, look, I've been advocating for this idea that if we really are on this next wave of being Jew, right? We're on the cusp of this next version of being Jewish, what Yitz Greenberg calls the third era, et cetera, that I, I really fundamentally believe that there will be a new definition of who is a Jew, just as there has been in each of the previous eras. And I believe that the 
version of that definition that makes most sense given how the world has changed is a self-determined definition. In other words, somebody is Jewish who says they are, and that is going to be problematic for certain people on, on two levels, right? One is that there are going to be people who say they are, there already are, people who say they are Jewish and have no Jewish ancestry and did not go through a formal conversion. And there are a lot of Jews out there who say, well, I don't want to accept that. That that I feel that that trivializes. And, and by the way, I'm not necessarily saying they're wrong. I mean, we can go deep into that question. I think it's an important question. And then by the same token, there are people who have two Jewish parents who may easily say, I'm not Jewish, and who may not have said anything. And in the case of somebody who has not said anything, then the question is, can we call somebody Jewish who has two Jewish parents who has not said anything? You know, are they presumptively Jewish or are they presumptively non-Jewish? And I think that Bernie Sanders is an interesting case study in that. Not that he has said that he doesn't consider himself Jewish. In fact, he's said that he does consider himself Jewish. But as we talked about five years ago when we started the podcast, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, he's not the right kind of Jewish or he's not that Jewish or he's not the kind of Jewish that I think is is the right way. And so therefore, they were kind of had a claim on Bernie that he wasn't being Jewish right. I'm just thinking so much about these Bernie memes that have been going around since the inauguration where he's like, you know, sitting there with his legs crossed and his big mittens folded over in his in his big coat. And it's kind of like he's sitting in a posture that just screams disgruntled old Jewish man. And there have been two kinds of memes that have emerged from this, right? One is the meme putting Bernie in all these frames from a movie that are kind of funny. Like my favorite was the one where he's sitting on the Jedi Council in Star Wars. <laughs> but the other set of memes are these memes that are kind of like a Jewish setting. And, and they're more verbal than a picture of Bernie with something going on behind him. They're just showing the picture of Bernie sitting that way and saying something like, well, when I hear that synagogue is called for 7.45 a.m., I come at 7.45 a.m. And, you know, what those memes are suggesting is that there's something about Bernie Sanders that is just so inherently and overflowingly Jewish that we absolutely recognize that guy even if he doesn't do traditionally Jewish things very often. And at the same time, I'm a little bit aware of the danger of putting somebody into a category that they don't choose to be put in, not necessarily in this case Jewish, but I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders, I don't think has seen the inside of a minion for many, many years. You know, I don't think that that's really, you know, and, and that's part of the joke, but it also feels like it's a little bit of a dangerous joke. I love Everything I thought you were going to go a different direction with your closing piece, so I'll go that direction. But I also love the Bernie memes and the mittens. I posted far too many of them this past week or two. Um, the problematicness I thought you were going to bring up is that the very thing that we sort of look at with Bernie, that we just sort of know, the, the thing that makes the meme works is that Bernie is so clearly Jewish. That very thing, like you and I are kind of advocating or at least sort of diagnosing that the direction of Judaism is such that like a lot of people who are not that aesthetic 
are Jews. And more and more of those people who don't have that aesthetic, whose backgrounds don't trace to Europe, who might not have those Ashkenazi associated patterns, whatever, like more and more of those people are Jews. And more and more of the people with Bernie's mannerisms don't identify as Jews. There are lots of people who are descended from, you know, one or two or three or four Jewish grandparents who don't identify as Jews. Um, And by the way, when I say don't identify as Jews, I actually mostly take that as a synonym for aren't Jews. There are lots of those people who have a lot of the mannerisms. Anyway, I'm thinking of a weird direction, probably because we're about to be talking about Bible, about Torah in these next bunch of episodes. But I'm thinking about a, a sort of specific kind of debate that ends up being important to my life. But like, there's characters in the Bible. I'm thinking specifically of Zipporah, Moses's wife, and Jethro, Zipporah's dad and Moses' father-in-law, who on the surface are not Jews, are not Israelites. But in later commentaries in Midrashim, it is suggested that they converted at some point in between the lines. And I have spent a lot of my time arguing with these midrashes, basically, because it's the same issue, right? It's people, in effect, with good intentions. I, I think these midrashes were meant to convey, like, ah, Tzipporah, Jethro, they're part of the team. Like, they're part of the Israelite group. Like, even though they were born to a different group, we truly see them as part of us. And to them and to the Ella Emhoff is a Jew people who I disagree with, I would say, let's ask if they want to be. Do, do I, We can't ask Zipporah, we can't ask Jethro, but like, is it actually sort of unabashedly positive to claim an ambiguous identity person as Jewish? It's certainly respectful to the people who want to be considered Israelites or Jews, but from my perspective, Zipporah and Jethro, like, Jethro was supposed to be like a priest, like a high priest of the Midianites. Like, I don't think it makes sense to presume that at a certain stage of life, he'd just be like, oh, I'm not that. I'm Israelite now. And Zipporah is, you know, daughter of that. I don't know what she would say. Like, maybe Zipporah is a more interesting case. But like, at the very least, it seems problematic to assume that people want to be part of the group if they are participating in the group. Like, so many people who are not Jewish today love spending time in Jewish environments, love spending time with their Jewish friends, love sharing Jewish observances. And you know what? They don't want to be Jews and they're not Jews and they're not looking to convert. We need to be able to balance the really good impulse to say, yes, Judaism, the boundaries of it, our name unbound, the boundaries of it need to expand such that people who may not have been perceived as Jewish are Jewish. But we can't be so lazy about that, that we sort of apply it to everybody who is adjacent to Jews at all, to the point that, and there's almost like sort of a self-pitying thing about it, where it's like, oh, why would anybody want to hang out with us if they're not actually us themselves? There's like a way in which we think Jewishness or Judaism are like not appealing, such that only the people that are us want to be part of it. Those Mm. midrashes have kind of won in certain spaces. Like there are certain people that like, if I said Tzipporah is not Jewish or or was not an Israelite, there are many spaces where just like immediately it is ingrained in folks like, oh, well, she converted, even though they know that she didn't in the basics of the text of the Hebrew Bible, that, that, that midrash has sort of been centered. Plenty of other midrashes are not centered. I am curious why that one won and what we can do to say maybe it doesn't need to continue winning. 
as the situation of the Jews changes and Jews take on the ability to erase the identities of others by certain actions that could seem innocuous when you are a powerless person, then your story is flipped. And now you have to live in the world in which you do have power, including the power to be very careful about who you claim as part of your own group and start calling them and checking. So before we move on to our, uh, you know, just to make a, a connection to our next topic, I do feel like there's something about this change of administration that we should at least note because I, I think I've told this story on the podcast before. I think we've talked about it, but you know, when the last change of administration happened, we had been around for less than a year and we had been planning this whole series of episodes on women and feminism, which we actually ended up doing earlier this year, uh, which was going to coincide with the inauguration of the first woman president, Hillary Clinton, and that didn't happen. And so even just that small example is just an example of how everything kind of went sideways in terms of what we were expecting. And we don't have that first woman president, but we do have the first woman vice president. Her husband is a Jew. And I just wonder whether there's anything that we want to talk about in terms of this new world in which we're living. Justice is easier to pursue, to quote, you know, a commandment. Justice is easier to pursue when the lead enforcers and public officials are interested in pursuing that justice. I am not convinced that the previous administration was by any definition of what I consider justice. And so what I'm excited about is we have in power a set of people who I think are much more conducive towards achieving that. What I don't want us to fall for is the idea that we can be complacent and that this this shift, this transition was kind of the win. There's notable wins already. There's executive orders that on day one made people's lives better. And I look forward to many more of those. You know, I'm really thrilled. And like all the representation pieces you talked about are important too. You know, people who are Jewish, you know, the second vice president, although that's the second gentleman. So sorry, second gentleman. Thank you. Um, I haven't heard second lady very much second, but like, here we are second gentleman. So that's, and also, you know, the first person, the the first tri-faith household is Kamala Harris and Doug Emhoff have a tri-faith and maybe arguably with Ella Emma, maybe like a quad faith, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, and, and you know, agnostic or none to use, you know, Casper Turkayo language, N-O-N-E. Like maybe it's a quad faith family in a sense because of Ella. I don't know. But like, that's a notable thing too in a world where we're talking about how boundaries of religion are shifting and changing. Um, as much as that first person with Hindu heritage who is part of the equation, that first Jew who is part of a coupling that is in the White House. I think that's, it's it's all of importance. And I'm also holding that the issues that are demonstrated by a George Floyd or by a climate change or by, you know, go down the list of inequalities, of economic inequality, like we still have immense steps to take. Yeah, I've been thinking about this the last few days. My analogy is to somebody being rushed to the hospital at death's door. You know, the training in an emergency room is is always this idea of ABC, that you have to check, make sure there's an airway, 
make sure the person is breathing or, you know, help them if they're not already. And circulation, like make sure the blood is, is circulating. And if not, you know, do CPR and make, you got to get those three things into place, the airway, the breathing and the circulation before you, you try to figure out what actually happened to the person because they're going to die if you don't do that. And so there's this stage of just kind of preventing death. And then there's this stage where you actually have to figure out what went wrong and fix it. The question is, how long do you have the emergency room stay be before you know you really got to work on the underlying cause? And that, I think, is really challenging for me to think about because I definitely feel this sense of immense relief that my loved one is in the ER and is not going to die tomorrow. But then I, I fundamentally also wonder what this fun ultimately says about about Judaism, you know, like I, I think these are things that, like I also feel like, have we been able to talk about everything that we should have talked about over the last four years because some of the things have felt like extremely urgent and extremely high stakes. I mean, even things like anti-Semitism, right? I mean, I think there's ways that I see anti-Semitism now that are very different than how I saw it four years ago, but I'm not sure that I was in a position to think very thoughtfully about it over the last four years because it's just been so frightening. And so now I kind of feel like, hey, we better not forget to talk about and to think about anti-Semitism just because it might be for a certain period of time less in our face. And that's just one example of, of lots of examples of things that I don't only mean things that touch on Jews. Is there a way that we can now feel free and we must talk about them even though they may seem less urgent and not only must talk about them must do things about them and so I, i'm feeling though that we're going to have to push ourselves to do that like we're going to have to remind ourselves to do that because like you say the the concern is that ha with the pressure and the fear reduced you go to complacency the other thing that i just want to note about about Judaism and back to tying something about what we were saying earlier about claiming people or sort of forcing people into a Jewish identity. It, it brings me back to this question of, which is actually a question that we talked about early on in the podcast. Like what is Judaism? That Judaism or Jewishness or the Jewish stuff is something that actually is able to be contributed into the larger conversation. Some version of what it means to be somebody that's deeply engaged with the Jewish stuff, such that they can carry that in to the public square and help America. By the way, in some ways, like Bernie, that they could do that without having to necessarily claim or have an identity as a Jew be thrust upon them. And that feels really hard to talk about because it's something that we, I think, haven't seen yet. But it's something that I aspire to try to figure out. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing to bring up because the Torah, the Bible, is a thing that was, you know, distinctly Israelite or distinctly Jewish that a whole slew of people relate to regularly without identifying themselves as Jews or Israelites, namely Christians, even non-Christians who are functioning in a society that traces its heritage in many ways to the Bible. And so... What you're describing doesn't feel that far-fetched to me. It actually feels very much the precedent that like, okay, so there's Jewish material in, in one case, you know, stories and texts and whatever that make up the Bible. Those found a way to be relevant to 
a world of people, a literal world of people, like it's actually relevant to like much of the world, the vast majority of whom, 99.8% are not Jews. So if that's the case, all the more so, call Vachomer to get very Talmudic for a second, all the more so, let's find ways in which, you know, Jewish historical facts or Jewish, what I mean by that is like, Things that a lot of Jews share because of the last few hundred years of history. So like, you know, experiencing immense trauma of the Holocaust, understanding what it is to be oppressed and marginalized, being largely a wandering kind of people that has moved in drastic numbers from country to country. Having that source material, and I know it's not a literal source in the same way that like a Torah thing is a written source, but having that be cherished and understood by the world and having Jews be the ones who see it as our job to channel that out into the world, not just to Jews, that absolutely feels attainable. There are real elements of Jewish experience that can teach and can inform and can contribute to a better world. How do we, in a tangible way, do that? As opposed to saying... We're not quite as worried about our literal safety as Jews now. Um, once again, I'm emphasizing this isn't as opposed. I don't think this. As opposed to thinking, you know, we're not so worried about our literal safety as Jews because that was most threatened under Trump. Now we can sort of take a break until the next moment of deep terror and threat. That's not the takeaway I want to have. And, I, and truthfully, it's not what I think people are having. I actually am not pessimistic about this. We just have to actually go from the mental space of, ah, yes, Judaism has been useful and can teach and Jewish history can teach. Let's do the teaching. As you were talking, I was running through the various Jewish holidays and the two holidays that happen in the spring, Purim and Passover, happen to be that I think the two holidays most tied to a biblical, quote, historical event. Uh, and by the way, like that raises this question of like, everybody says, you know, every Jewish holiday is they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. Actually, it's not every Jewish holiday. It's really only nope. two of them. Uh, you know, well, three yeah. of them. Yeah. If you throw Hanukkah in and that's not biblical. So there are really only two holidays that are from the Bible, the, from the books that were canonized in the Bible that are about a story and that we have a holiday all sort of built upon that that story, and uh, they're coming up. And it wasn't intentional, except if you believe that, you know, the hand of God was involved. But we have this series of episodes coming up, but we just thought it would be fun to do a deep dive into the Bible from all sorts of different perspectives. Read it from a historian standpoint, from an archaeological standpoint, from a way to live your life standpoint, and to offer all kinds of ways of looking at this one text, it's really not one text, it's many, many texts, and and just to kind of spend some time with people who spend a lot of their time really mining this material and looking at it in different ways. And ultimately, you know, we'll see where we are in X many weeks when we do a debrief on on that series. But I have this feeling that one of the problems is that everybody tends to look at the Bible through their own lens. 
it's kind of like that story of the all the different people who you know can't see, but they're all touching an elephant, and one of them thinks it's all trunk, and one of them thinks it's all tail, et cetera, because they only uh, really see the part that you're, or you feel the part that you're feeling if you can't see the whole thing. And it might be that there's one of those perspectives that really is the right one, but for me, it's always been that I appreciate reading from all these different perspectives and, and letting them all kind of simmer together and uh, generate thinking about the ongoing relevance of the Bible. So I'm hoping that this experience will sort of be one that we can share with others and and let's see what happens from it. I'm really with you on that. I'm excited about this unit. And the last piece that I would say is one ongoing thread that we'll be talking about here and there is the question of sort of the Torah, the Bible, capital letters, versus Torah, which when I say that, I'm referring to the idea that like, yes, there is this set of books, the Torah, this set of books, the Hebrew Bible, but there's also the idea that like people have their Torah and have their their ways of teaching. And I'm curious, especially given that, you know, we mentioned the Bernie memes, right? But like, I actually believe that there is Torah in those Bernie memes, that there is deep teaching, that there is deep wisdom in those silly but true memes that suggest, you know, Bernie Sanders is this quintessential kind of Jewishness, is this lived, embodied commitment to social justice alongside this aesthetic of a grumpy but caring older person. Like, I actually think that those memes, etc., were a kind of Torah, and I'm excited in this unit to have it push me and push us to consider, like, in what ways is the Torah one set of Torahs that can help us think about all sorts of other ways in which there is deep wisdom in our world, even in the the memes. Um, we hope you've enjoyed these conversations on Jewish philanthropy. I mean, this episode has been a fun transitional moment that is neither fully in our previous unit and not, and not fully in our next unit either. Cue up the debates about whether like Shabbat is part of the previous week or part of the next week. Uh, I had some great conversations with a bar mitzvah student about that. Um, and, you know, we hope you'll stick around for the future ones. But if you do, if you don't, whatever it is, we love it when you send us your thoughts, your questions about anything you've listened to recently. And you can do that in a bunch of ways. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter or our Instagram. All of those are Judaism Unbound for the handles, no spaces or anything. Third, there is our judaismunbound.com website. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. One last plug for you to submit those amazing reviews in iTunes, in Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, whatever, like Dan mentioned at the top. We love it when you do that. It helps people find our podcast. But that's our show for today. And we hope that you'll journey with us through the Torah and through some different Torahs. So thanks so much for listening. This has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>